welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the film podcast on the Nerd Party Network that is dedicated to opening the wonderful flower that is uh, everything from cinematography to script writing to film itself and its traditions. And I am one of your hosts, John. And I'm Mike. And this week, we have a special treat for you. We are going to be taking a look at our respective uh, top lists of 2017. This isn't just going to be a top 10 countdown, um, nor a top 40, uh, but it is going to be just the movies that struck our fancy. And I think just to lay sort of like that ground expectation right off the bat, uh, and Mike, if you want to share people with, with like, you know, your criteria for putting together your best of my best of 2017 includes movies that were released as long ago as 1953, because when I consider a list of, of films that I liked best for the year, if it's new to me, it's a, I guess it's a red shirt freshman or something like that. So uh, are your selections going to be strictly from 2017? Yeah, you know, I, I I do this every year, and and you know, I know that uh, Lee and Matt did this on um, filibuster uh, a few yeah. weeks ago, and you know, Lee was like, "Hey, you want to come on and and give your top 10? and I was like, "I still haven't seen all the movies I need to see. Like, I hadn't seen the post yet. That was the big one. You know, I kind of needed to wait for that to come okay. out. And usually, I I do this on my own website every year. So I was like, you know, I'm I'm gonna just I'm just, just going to do it on my own, but you know, I, we're, I don't really have the opportunity to do it on on my on my website this year. So I was like, okay, well, I missed out on Lee's thing, and I I didn't I wouldn't have wanted to do it at that point in time anyway because I really like to wait until I've seen everything that I feel like I need to see in order to properly make the list, and I hadn't done that at that point. Because okay. uh, the post just came out last week here in Chicago, so you know, here's our our first chance, and uh, figured might as well take advantage of it, right? Yeah, and and the thing is, given the uh, sort of, you know the spirited conversations we have, I mean, you know, anybody that's listened to us here or over on stage nine, they know that you and I are our film tastes can sometimes uh, dovetail, as it were, and then sometimes we wildly diverge. Uh, on our opinions of film, so I'm I'm really interested to know where our our divergences are, um, you know, our, our points of interest. Now, seeing as how I'm talking about stuff that's outside of the realm of 2017, I'm just going to go ahead and get it out of the way and say that the films from not 2017 that made my list were uh, I saw for the first time as part of uh, an exercise for Missing Frames, another show here on the network with uh, Sean Eastridge. I saw the first two of the Before trilogy by Linklater, uh, before Sunrise and before Sunset. I've fallen in love with them. They are two of my favorite films of all time. Uh, and I know they were released a while ago, but there you have it. They they made the, the 2017 list for me. I saw, thanks to um, the founder of the Nerd Party Network, uh, Tristan Riddell, I saw the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven. And uh, that, I think, is an absolute brilliant film. I was spellbound for the entire running time. And I saw Straight Outta Compton and uh, The Wages of Fear, which is a, a classic black and white film. And uh, I think that probably bores everybody because those aren't movies that came out in 2017. There are some others on there, and if we get to that, that's great. But 
Mike, what was, when you're putting your list together, you mentioned you saw the post. Did the post live up to expectations? Did it make your list? Yeah, it 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 cracked the top ten. You know, I would put it at number ten on my list. You know, it it just it just squeezed itself in there. It's kind of like classic Spielberg in a sense. If I had to compare it to a Spielberg movie, I'd say probably Bridge of Spies. To be honest, you know, it has that sort of uh, quiet, you know, um, like but but assuredness to it. You know, it's it's a great story, obviously, and. I think that one of the things that I love about it and one of the things that I love about Spielberg is that everyone, you know, sees him as being this sort of like filmmaker who, you know, makes these massive, you know, kind of like sweeping epics in one way or another, whether it's Jurassic Park or Schindler's List, you know, I mean, he, he does it all. And occasionally he does make these like smaller movies. And like, this is one which came together like super duper quick. And I just find it fascinating that there might be some filmmakers or some movies by, you know, this filmmaker, which are in development for years and years and years in which there's a, a tremendously long process in order to get oh. it to the screen. And then he can turn around and put together this thing in a matter of months and it ends up you know, being one of the front runners for the Oscars, it ends up being one of the best movies of the year. Uh, it's just really, really, really skillfully crafted. I know this is shocking for a Spielberg movie, um, but <laughs> right. it's not at all like flashy or anything like that. The performances are great. I mean, one of the things which which is fascinating about it is, you know, who he gets for his supporting cast, you know? You've got both uh, David Cross and, you know, Bob Odenkirk in here, you know, just kind of, because why not? Why wouldn't you, you know? And just random people who, they th who he throws in where it's like, hey, that guy, that's cool that he's using that guy in this way. That's such a bizarre choice, but it works, you know? And well... Yeah, I mean, just as a, a quick thing there, I would say uh, that Odenkirk has really proven his dramatic chops, not just with Breaking Bad, but with Better Call Saul. Yeah. Um, so I'm thrilled that that's leading to work in films like this for Odenkirk. I'm like, I, I'm a huge cheerleader for the guy, so I'm glad to hear that it worked well uh, in this one. And he has a pretty big role. You know, I mean, David Cross, he's just kind of there, you know, with this really yeah. weird, he's got hair, which is very off-putting, but, you know, whatever. Um but uh, Odenkirk is like sort of like one of the the secondary you know leads I guess and and he, he's great in this and I wasn't super familiar with the story and it's it's fascinating um, but yeah yeah really really good I, I definitely definitely recommend it so it cracked your top ten was there another movie that it deposed or was the ten slot open. And and that's it was just ready and waiting for a movie to slide into it. Well, I've I've got a list, you know. I've always got a list, and you know, I'm modifying it and moving things around here and there. And I guess the movie which it knocked off of the top ten would have been Wonder Woman, you know. Oh wow! It cost Wonder Woman her slot. That's rough, yeah. man. Yeah, you know, Wonder Woman's a great movie and everything, and it's got some really great moments. And I sort of you know like what it is in the grand scheme of things, but I also do think that it kind of falls into the stereotypical uh, comic book movie ending, oh, yeah. you know, sort of yeah. situation. The the big series of explosions. 
yeah. until the biggest explosion wraps up the climax. Yeah, no, I exactly. That, that, so. If if I had any quibble with Wonder Woman, it would be that. It, mm-hmm. it definitely is that. So I, I could understand that. Okay, so so the post is you're saying this is this is small scale Spielberg. This is you know just something that that shows that he's such a master at his craft that it it is fairly it's it's never effortless and um, film is always the you know the the experience of a lot of people but this is somebody who knows how to steer the ship walking in and say like it's almost like a Ridley Scott type of thing when they were interviewing him recently and they were like how can you do two movies a year he's like how can I not I know what I'm doing yeah it's almost like okay yeah you can make a movie this quickly like why would it take you so long to make a movie when you can do this in just a couple months right so that's and that that's a big question for me but I think it's very interesting that you know what what was because with Bridge of Spies I didn't see Bridge of Spies but didn't he release like a big blockbustery sort of thing right around that time like within six months or a year of that it almost I, I've got to think that the BFG was okay was the thing and then we have Ready Player One coming out after this so he seems to just be releasing them in pairs but it's small intimate movie and then big explosive blockbuster movie which seems like he's always done that and he was going to do that here too he had that movie about the priest or something like that or like the bishop or i forget what it was um which he had like mark rylance was going to be in it and everything and they were going to start shooting that they were going to shoot that when they shot the post but then he's like okay let me let me just squeeze the post in first because it's very very timely and everything like that so you know just huh. threw that in there, you know, like that, which is cool that he can just kind of turn on a dime and make yeah. a best picture nominee whenever he wants. So. Well, I I imagine you have to be of a Spielberg level to sort of command that sort of oomph to it, you know, like like I like uh, Damien Chazelle is beloved and has created some great stuff, but I doubt that he has the swagger to walk into a studio and say, "Yeah, I need the money, and we're, we're going to do this." And they're gonna be like, "Sure thing, Damien, we'll do that for you." Like, whereas with Spielberg, it's like, "Hey, you know, Bob, I need a couple of million dollars so I can do the post, and it, you know, I think it's gonna be pretty good." Yeah, sure thing, Steve. Here you go. Yeah, like that. That was something I, I just read a Paul Thomas Anderson interview where he was talking about Spielberg and about the idea of Spielberg being a big, a guy who makes big studio movies, and Anderson was like. Spielberg is the most independent filmmaker on the planet because he can literally do anything he wants. Yeah. You know, at any scale, any budget, anything. He can just walk in and say, I'm doing this, and someone will give him money and say, okay, you know. So here's here's a question for you, right? Do you think that George Lucas would have continued making films and even Star Wars films if he had followed the Spielberg method and instead of being totally immersed in his world had done something where he did something like a THX 1138 and then episode seven. And then he went back and he did something that was like an experimental race movie that was completely wild and, you know, race cars through lava or something. And then he came back and he did 
you know, almost. I guess you could almost say it's almost uh, the Nolan method as well, where it's like I do my Batman movie and then I do the thing I want to do, and then I do my Batman movie and then I do the thing I want to do, and then I do my my, my my Batman movie and then I can do whatever I want to do. You know, do you think that would have extended Lucas's career? I think it would have extended his career, but I mean, it seems like he wasn't really interested in doing that because, I mean, he's one of those guys like Spielberg who could totally do that if he wanted to. Yeah. But he just chose not to, right? Well, I mean, the thing is, you can always make the argument that he, and, you know, th- this is one of the things I love about him is that he said, well, here I have this medium that I know is going to make money no matter what I do. So I will do the crazy things that I want to do, but within it. And, you know, and that's why, you know, the, the prequels get more abstract as they go along. And with the Clone Wars, he can play with television and format and storytelling and all of that stuff. And so long as he puts the Star Wars label on it, it's going to make cash. And so, it, like, the beast can feed itself as opposed to every so often Spielberg has, like, the egg on his face of, like, the BFG is a flop. And if he were at an earlier stage in his career, it costs him these opportunities as opposed to... You know what I'm saying? Like, it's one thing to have built up to the point where Spielberg can take a hit on BFG or the low expectations of Ready Player One and still get that authorization to do those sorts of things. You you know? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely, you know, he has a proven track record. I mean, the fact that he makes so many movies, some of them are going to be duds. But, I mean, when he has hits, they're big hits, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I... I don't know. I guess I. I guess I'm. We, we shouldn't talk about. I, like I'm just endlessly fixated on Ready Player One in in a sense because it's like I'm obsessed with. It's like uh, George Costanza on Seinfeld when he's obsessed with the woman that doesn't want to like him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not even a dating thing. He's just obsessed with her because she hates him, and he's like, I have to figure out why she hates me. Like sort of like I have that sort of thing, that sort of thing going on. So, um, I'm interested because I don't have any like specific order. Uh, to my list, but a film I did see in 2017 that I'm pretty sure we both have on the list is Logan. Yeah, that that made it to my list. Okay, uh, where, where was be, it in the rank? That would be number eight on my list. So what's nine? What's between Logan and The Post? Thor Ragnarok. Really? I mean, you look at me like I'm crazy, but you're the only one who doesn't like that movie. I didn't say I didn't like that movie. Okay, you just said it with your eyes. No, I didn't. I <laughs> yes, you did. We no, have video. I can post all, a screen cap. All I communicated with my eyes was that's not a top 10 movie. Like, that's you, the thing. That's the reaction I'm having. I liked Thor Ragnarok fine, but I wasn't, I wasn't pants on fire about it walking out of the theater. I was like, yeah, I had a good time. But, like, you asked me to, you know, recite specific moments or stuff like that i'm like yeah there's that thing where the hulk and thor are talking and stuff you know like it it wasn't a it wasn't a like guardians volume one was a movie where i walked out on fire where i was like oh my gosh this is so amazing and i'm incredible and colorful and it's like i i just traveled through the monolith to jupiter whereas with thor ragnarok i was like that was cute i had a good time you know that's just the difference in reaction so what what sets it apart what what puts it in a top 10 list? I, I legitimately, I want to know. I think the idea that it achieves all of the big, you know, action-y, crazy, cool things that you expect from a Marvel movie, and yet at its heart, the sort of like in-between moments, the the, the things which which make it, you know, or break it, you know, when it, when it comes to these movies, the, the character moments 
are very sort of like rough-edged kind of indie improv crazy humor, which is, you know, sort of like juxtaposed against, you know, what, what you would kind of commonly think of when you're thinking of a Thor movie, you know? That really worked for me. The humor really, really hit all of my, my buttons in the right way, and, and I thought that the story was really good, too, and as well as the action and everything. It, it was kind of the whole package, you know, but it, it, was, it was like big action blockbuster with an indie edge. So does Guardians Volume 2 make your top ten list? No. Explain to me the fundamental difference between them. Why is Thor Ragnarok more successful? Because they're essentially the same template of what you're just saying. They have the small, intimate moments that feel fresh and improv, and they have the big action beats and set pieces and all of those sorts of things. What clicks for Ragnarok that didn't click for Guardians 2? I think the overall story is better in Ragnarok, and I also think that... it's funnier, you know? Mm. I guess those are the two things, you know? And that's, that's just where our two roads diverge in the wood, I guess. Okay. Because right. uh, vol- Guardians Volume 2, I, I adored. I, I walked out of the theater really like It didn't make my quote-unquote list because in the end of it, it is, you know, it's, just, it's a silly, it's a really well-made trifle, but it's, you know, it, it is what it is and it owns what it is but I would still put it above Thor Ragnarok in terms of like craft and execution. So I, I guess that's just me, but like, okay, but we do agree on Logan yeah, and, and everything about that film. My big regret is not seeing Logan in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really regret that. Did you ever get a chance to see noir in the theater? Yeah, I did. Um, they showed it. Uh, well, they showed it a couple times. I missed it the first time around when they showed it at the Arc Light, but then I, I got to see it at the Music Box as part of like a, a late night screening thing that they did, and it was really cool seeing it, you know, in the theater, you know, seeing it in you know sort of like a classic venue like that, and you know the black and white version I think is definitely superior. You know, it, the, the, it just looks amazing. Not that the original version had anything wrong with it. But this just sort of like makes it stand out and sort of gives it that, you know, noirish edge to it, which I think is pretty cool. Now, do you think it just calls out the work of the cinematographer? Has he been nominated for anything by the ASC? Or is there any talk about him being nominated for uh, for an Oscar? I don't believe he was nominated by the uh, ASC. And because of that, he's probably not going to get nominated for an Oscar because that's usually how... You know, those things usually mirror each other. Right. And um, so, yeah, he's probably not. But I I do think that that he is worthy for sure. I mean, the the black and white version looked great. Yeah, I I, I didn't see it in black and white. I didn't get to see uh, Logan until it was on home video release. Because actually, when I first moved down here, I was in the house alone and there was no television, no cable and no internet. And so I uh, trekked on down to Walmart and, and got an old computer and got the multi-format and uh, watched Logan on a computer screen because there was nothing else to do. And Well, if you've got the... You know, so you have the streaming version? Oh, yeah. I have, the, I, I have access to the, to the noir version, and I, I will see it. I'm, so just so you chose to watch the color version instead of the noir version? 
Well, I figured first time seeing it, I was going to get as close to the theatrical experience as possible. Mm. What, you know, the noir was always presented as the alternate version of it. So I chose to watch it the way that I would have seen it in the movie theater. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. You know, that's just me. Okay. So, okay. So we, we both have Logan. What's next on your list? Uh, number seven for me is Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Not number one? No. What? No. Come on. After the, the spirited discussions that we've had, that wasn't number one? No. I mean, it was really great, but it wasn't number one. No. Oh, okay. I was just curious. I didn't know. Yeah. I, didn't know. Okay. I take it that didn't make your list? No, that didn't make my list. Okay. That didn't make my list. I was too busy uh, keeping a uh, spot on the list reserved for uh, Baby Driver, actually. Oh, yes. Well, that's number one on my list. That's number one? Yeah. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Clearly the best movie of the year. I mean, nothing else really comes close in my mind. Well, maybe one other movie comes sort of close, but no. Baby Driver just completely blew me away, Yeah. which is kind of hilarious because all of my friends love Edgar Wright and have since Shaun of the Dead, calling it one of the best movies ever made and everything. And I couldn't get away from all of these Edgar Wright fans who would just (laughs) not shut up about him. Then Hot Fuzz comes out, and that's a masterpiece. And then Scott Pilgrim comes out, and that's a masterpiece. And then The World Ends comes out, and that's a masterpiece. And the whole time I'm just like, these movies are pretty good. You guys are crazy. You're a little over the top. These movies are pretty good. Then Baby Driver comes out, and I'm like, oh, my God, you guys, this is the one. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is so good. Clearly his best movie, you know, one of the best, you know, car chase movies ever, just one of the best movies ever. And then all of them are like, yeah, it was pretty good. I'm like, are you kidding, guys? What's 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 wrong with you guys? Yeah. Yeah. I, awesome. uh, I actually saw that film with podcaster extraordinaire matthew rushing and uh yeah he had he had a similar sort like i walked out of the theater i was like wow that was so cool i love that that was so great and his reaction was no i really liked it and i was like you know it was one of those things where it was uh i you know i i didn't understand why his enthusiasm wasn't matching mine sort of thing but i mean you Mm -hmm. know i guess different strokes and everything like that but i just thought and the thing is that one of my favorite things about baby driver is the the cute little jab um, at uh, the solo movie by uh, <laughs> by having one of the potential leads wearing a jacket that looks like Han Solo's vest? Yeah, and, you know, I thought that was that. Like, I, I chuckled through the entire opening sequence internally because I was like, ha, "Ha ha ha! I know what you're doing." <laughs> so. It's just that that opening sequence, you know. It just, I mean, that movie. Yeah. That's how you start a movie, you know. Yep. And. Uh, you know, I, I saw it. I saw it at a theater, which was, you know, just kind of a decent theater or whatever, on opening night. And I was like, "This movie's amazing! I have to go see it again." And then the next day, they were showing it at my local Dolby Cinema, and I'm like, "Okay, well, I have to go there and see it in Dolby." And I saw it there, and I'm like, "This is the most amazing, you know, visual audio experience I've ever had." And I'm like, I have to go see it again tomorrow. And 
I saw that movie a, 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 like four or five times in the theater. I saw it, you know, in Dolby. They they brought it back, you know, for a week in Dolby. I saw it then, and then they showed it in thirty five millimeter at the Music Box again. Got to see it there, and it was just an, an, an amazing experience every single time. And and now I can watch it from the comfort of my own home. I showed it to my my family, my my parents, and my great aunt, and all of them. They had no idea what it was. I just cranked up the sound as loud as I could and blew everyone away. It was great. Yeah. Love that movie so much. And it's going to frustrate everybody, I think, that loves it as much as we do to uh, to know that it stands no chance of getting any sort of nomination at the Oscars for Best Picture or anything like that. Because... No, although it, it does seem to be... It, it seems to have a pretty good shot at getting nominated for Best Editing. Which is good because it definitely deserves that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I mean, we we jumped ahead. We'll come back down to where we were in the list. I'll throw one in there that I saw. I think it's only been released on Netflix. If it had a theatrical run, I have no idea. But I actually uh, watched Jim and Andy: The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. Uh, which Mm. is the full title of it. It's a documentary featuring unearthed footage from like 20 years ago of Jim Carrey as he was preparing to be in Man on the Moon. Oh, wow. And it has a current interview with him, you know, the the post-crazy career Jim Carrey, the post-serious turn Jim Carrey, the Jim Carrey of today, recalling his memories, addressing stuff that you see in the footage and stuff like that and where he is now as a performer and a person. I think it's a beautifully edited documentary. I think that whoever was asking him the questions, you never hear their voice. You know, it's it's one of those documentaries where he's just talking. He's obviously responding to questions, but you don't hear the interviewer's questions. And whoever was interviewing him was brilliant. Was it, I, You might hear their voice every so often, but like, they were absolutely brilliant. They got just an incredible, honest... Uh, but that's the, that's the thing you're left with, considering the subject matter that you're watching, and I've talked about this with people, is, is this an incredible moment where you're watching somebody who's been sort of broken by the experience and changed irrevocably by the experience of doing this film and be, being who he is, or is this a work where he wants you to believe that because you find out how deep he went into the Andy Kaufman experience and, and committed to it he was. And so I think that's I think that's an interesting question. I fall very firmly on the side that you're getting just pure, honest Jim Carrey of today in the in the current footage. Highly recommend it, though. It was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still there. It probably is. But um, can't recommend it highly enough. Just I, And usually I'm not somebody that's going to put, like, documentaries on my top of the year sort of thing. Like, it takes a lot. I think the last time that I put a documentary as one of my favorite films of the year was Grizzly Man. Mm. So uh, I would put this up there with, it's just compelling. When I started it, I was curious about it. And I said, I'll watch a couple of minutes and see what it's like. And I wound up staying up too late because I just couldn't turn it off. I was just like, I got to watch this whole thing all the way through. So... Yeah, that does sound really good. I mean, because I I remember the release of that movie vividly because, you know, I had pretty much just started as a projectionist and that was one of the big Christmas movies, you know, and Mm -hmm. I remember seeing that trailer a billion times. I can, like, recite that trailer, had that music, which at the time I didn't know was from uh, 
uh, King of the Hill, the the Soderbergh movie, and then, oh God, and then I remember watching that movie in an empty theater by myself at, in the middle of the night to make sure that nothing was wrong with it, and uh, yeah, it'd be cool to see some behind-the-scenes stuff there, because that was certainly a big deal at the time. There is some great behind-the-scenes behind stuff, especially with uh, Zmuda mm-hmm. uh, in it, so... Yeah, highly, highly recommend it. Okay, so coming back down, we jumped from Logan up to Baby Driver. Um, no, episode eight was, we've already talked about episode eight before. Uh, what? Okay, we're moving past episode eight. What's next on the list? Well, number six for me was Battle of the Sexes, which oh, really Steve hasn't Carell. gotten, yeah, Steve Carell and Emma Stone hasn't gotten much love at all, um, but you know, I, I was aware of of this event. You know, the the um, the the big uh, battle of the sexes tennis match between um, I forget their names. Billy Jean, Billy Jean King, and some guy. Yeah, who yeah. was he? He was a big tennis star, and then he was retired and on the senior circuit or whatever. But he was, you know, a pretty big misogynist who was like. I'm a man. I can beat any woman. I can beat the best woman, you know, so they they do this thing. And it's it's really really good, you know, directed by uh, Dayton and Ferris, uh, the the team that that directed Little Miss Sunshine and Oh wow, okay. and, and the Freak on a Leash video for Corn and <laughs> various other things. I can't believe I missed that one. You haven't seen Freak on a Leash by Corn? No. Oh my god. Like revolutionary video it's great it, it's it starts off with this i mean you, you just have to see it like trust me on this just watch the, the four minute video and it'll change your life but is it on youtube uh, yeah it's everywhere you'll find okay. it everywhere um right. it starts off like with this animation by todd mcfarlane actually because oh. he did the cover for the thing and it's like these these like kids you know like on a playground and there's like this thing where like you know, I don't know what it, what it was exactly, but you know, the security guard or cop or something like that, you know, is is you know chasing them because he thinks that they're someone nefarious or whatever, and his gun accidentally goes off, right? And then everything like drops to slow motion as you see like the bullet like pass by one of the kids, and it breaks out of the animation into the real world, and then it takes you as this bullet goes in like super, super slow, slow motion through these various scenes. And it like, you know, it'll like break through like a, 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 a coffee cup in an office or it'll go, you know, through whatever, whatever it's doing. Okay. It, it's just, it's awesome, you know? And uh, yeah, I just, I, everyone see, you're the only person who hasn't seen this video. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I'm the only person. You're There's, the only person. I guarantee so, you, everyone else has seen this video. So your 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 parents, who who you showed Baby Driver to, they've seen this video. I've 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 almost certainly shown it to my mom. I think. Yeah. Okay. Probably. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Well, Not sure about my dad, but I'm pretty sure. Else. I'm pretty sure my kids haven't seen it. So I'm sure that I'm one of four people that hasn't seen this video. Well, you should show it to them. It's good. I'm. Yeah, that's right up on the list. After after we uh, play uh, Elmo's Adventures in Grouchland, okay, I'll, I'll say, hey, hey, no, 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 we got a four minute video we're gonna watch. <laughs> Sit, gather around, kids. That's they bleep out the swearing on, on, during the video, so you don't have to worry about it. That's an important thing. It's an important thing. It's a great yeah. song too. Anyway, anyway. regardless, um, these 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 people they directed that video and they also directed Battle of the Sexes, and you know, 
Battle of the Sexes, complete opposite of that, in that it's just kind of like a, a very small character piece without a lot of flash. But, you know, I mean, I love sports movies. I love underdog stories, just like everyone else. And and this is definitely that. And, and it also, you know, sort of like does a good job of, you know, sort of like capturing the, the climate of the time, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what was going on socially and all that stuff. And it's really, really intriguing and also, you know, really funny at times and just sort of like a great sports movie. So, yeah. Yeah, I I remember seeing ads for it and I figured that was definitely Oscar contention sort of material. And I'm also a big fan of, I mean, I'm a big fan of Emma Stone, obviously, but I'm also a big fan of Steve Carell because he's one of the actors that I think, like Tom Hanks, pulled off the switch to like full-on dramatic roles mm-hmm. you know like that plenty of comic actors have done it and then they lose steam or they have a burst of success in the beginning and then they you know just sort of sputter out Carell seems to be on that hanks arc where it's like he started out with that very respectable comedy background and then he got his foot in the door with the serious stuff and he's just worked at it and he's built on it and he's you know he's put on more and more and so I'm a big fan of his so I would like to see it at some point so yeah you know I mean it's there's definitely funny things that he does in the movie because the person who he was playing was kind of a funny guy but it's definitely more of a dramatic role and and he's great in it but I mean Emma Stone is the real star of the movie she's fantastic for sure. I believe that. She's a she is a really gifted actress. So yeah. I I would be really I, I like Billy Jean King is somebody who's like just on the cusp of consciousness for me. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not old enough to have like followed her career, but I'm old enough to be conscious of who she was. Like she was still a reference point uh wh- when I was growing up in my early years. I that that it's still a name that I know uh it, sort of thing. It's kind of amazing what they did with that. I mean, just like thinking about it now it's like god you know the fact that they were willing to even try to do this and then you know essentially succeed but like basically she was like hey we're getting paid like only a fraction of what the men are getting paid and you know we're just as big of a draw this is ridiculous you know if you don't pay us more money we're gonna walk and just start our own league and, you know, the international tennis, whatever it was, was like, go ahead. We'd like to see you try. And then they're like, OK. And then they did, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's pretty, pretty amazing that, that they actually did that, you know. And, and she was kind of at least as far as the movie, you know, portrays it. She was the and it makes sense because she was like the number one tennis player in the world. Right. So if she yeah. says she's walking. Then, I mean, what it, what is the 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 league if they don't have the absolute best so yeah they they sort of present her as like the ringleader and and it's it's pretty awesome yeah that's cool that's cool that's very cool uh now i think i uh i could have a guess as to a movie that did not make your top list but did make mine uh and again i'm not going in any specific order on my list but uh the greatest showman yeah i didn't see that movie i have a very uh pronounced weakness for musical theater um, for anybody listening that doesn't know, I studied theater. I was going to be an actor. I changed my mind. Um, but I still have musical theater is the one lasting substantive, true contribution 
that uh, the American theater scene has made to the world. Uh, it plays catch up in every other way, but but musical theater is really that's you know it's like cheering on rock and roll. It's like yeah, that's our art form. Yeah, we made that happen, and so I have a weakness for it to begin with. But I thought that it's just paced exactly right. It is. It moves through. The music is incredible. Like I'm I'm putting tonight before we recorded. Uh, I'm you know putting the kids to bed and. You know, we always have time, you know, wind down time, talk about our day and stuff like that. And I was singing music from the movie with the middle child who's already got the soundtrack memorized. (laughs) And like it's on constant play for me and stuff like that. And I think I think that the music is so good that it masks what might be considered um, shortcomings uh, in other circumstances. But it really is good enough. You know, like a a movie is constantly a battle of give and take. Right. Every so often you get something like Baby Driver, where it's just like everything, pardon, you know, saying this in in regards to a car movie, but everything fires on all cylinders and you just knock it out of the park. And I don't think that everything fires on all cylinders with Greatest Showman, but the music and the performances are there. And I I mean, this is the type of movie where I'm going to buy it and I'm going to watch it every so often and stuff like that, because it's just it's just, I, more than anything. It's just a joyous celebration of what uh, performance and theater are, which is just going out and entertaining people. And I think that you know, P.T. Barnum, you know, somebody brought up Barnum wasn't necessarily a really good guy. Yeah. And my my response was, well, Jim Morrison got a free pass. Ray Charles wasn't a great guy either, and neither was Jim Morrison, and neither. Honestly, FDR had some drawbacks to him and stuff like that, but we don't blink about making movies about these people. So, you know, is it is it a glamorized version of, of what really... Yeah, it sure is, but it makes no bones about that. It Basically, you walk in and it's just like, this is just a show, so let's just enjoy it, and I'm all on board for it. So, yeah, made my, uh, my, my, my top list for 2017, so... Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I guess... I'm not a big fan of the circus, so, you know, it's a tough sell for me, you know, and I, I will say that, you know, as ridiculous as it is, when I saw from the lyricists of La La Land, there was a part of me which was like, should I should I see that? But when you get into, like, this time of year when there's just, you know, the massive dump of, like, oh yeah, Oscar movies, and it's just like, and you're trying to 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 you know see everything in order to make this list, you know that we're we're giving right now as soon as possible. It's just like I don't have time, you know. Maybe if it came out in like February or something like that, but yeah, uh, yeah, I definitely think that it. Uh, they, I think they tried counter programming and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I, I think it just got lost in the shuffle. And but I can I can honestly say that everybody that I know personally who has seen it has uh, been a fan of it. Okay. I haven't heard anybody uh, you know be like, oh no, I didn't really care for that. Everybody's come come out of it saying like, I had such a good time watching it. Success oh, cool. for me. So what's next up on your list? Uh, next on my list is Molly's Game. Uh, oh, I, I want to see that so bad. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about this person. You know, going into it, she was a woman who was an Olympic hopeful in skiing who uh, got injured, and you know, moved to Hollywood, became an assistant for some producer, 
who basically gave her the task of organizing his, you know, weekly poker game for all of these Hollywood elites, you know, all of these movie stars and everything. And she basically took what she learned from that and used it to start up her own game and, you know, was extremely successful, but also got into trouble with the law. And this is kind of the story about that, you know, it's, it's basically a story about a person who is, you know, given this, this sort of, you know, option to, you know, sell out the people who entrusted her or, you know, stand up for her beliefs and stand up, you know, to the government and, 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 uh, you know, do what's, what's right, you know, and sort of like take a hit herself and, you know, sort of like the struggle that goes on with that. But it's great. I mean, you know, I mean, everyone loves, you know, poker movies, of course, you know, yeah. whether it's rounders or whatever. And this is just as good in, in terms of that. It's also it also works really well as a sports movie, you know, and, and everything. And poker Jessica Chastain. Sport? What? Poker as a sport? No, it was the skiing aspect. Okay. You know? All right. All right. All right. Um, I'll, I'll accept it. But, uh, you know, the, um, I mean, Jessica Chastain is amazing as always, but this is, I mean, she takes it to another level here and, you know, Aaron Sorkin's script obviously is fantastic, but you know, this is the first time that he's ever directed and he pretty much directs like he writes, you know, super fast paced and everything. I mean, the editing in this is, is top notch as well. And I think it's great. I kind of wish he'd he's been directing all along you know because he's really really good at it and and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what what he does next for sure but yeah this is definitely top notch just a a great story told very well okay so here's my question though is they have real life celebrities playing their real there's themselves in the in the film right no oh no they don't, they don't have anybody Anybody, because that, that was, that was, that was one of the, the things which, uh, you know, Sorkin talks about, you know, he's like, this whole story is about a woman who's, you know, as he described her, it's like, she's a hero and her one heroic act was that she wouldn't name names. Right. And she's like, I, you know, you, you go online you type in Molly's game and all the names will come up, right? Because they were leaked by other people and stuff like that. But he's like, to to actually name names in this thing would seem counter to what the movie is about, really. So they have, essentially, it's, it's one guy who they don't name in the movie. They call him Player X. And he's supposed to be a composite of all of these, you know, movie stars who, who she, you know... Uh, worked with or whatever and in in the movie he is played by Michael Sarah, uh, which is kind of great casting because he comes in and he is someone who you recognize right yeah and he's like hey I'm and then she says oh I know who you are and then you know Uh, it just kind of goes from there he's not playing himself you know if but but he's playing a movie star you know they got a movie star to play a movie star in a sense so all right okay see because that that was my big concern was that there was going to be that sort of thing where it's like jessica chastain the actor is playing molly and then i'm going to see uh you know uh brad pitt playing brad pitt and whenever i see it, it, it was like uh i never i was never 
big on the Sopranos, uh, especially in the latter half. But I remember they had like a poker game thing on one of the episodes that I, I did watch the opening of at least. And they had, you know, just because they knew that it was going to get a reaction from the audience, they had David Lee Roth sitting in there. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then I thought about it for a second. I was like, ah, oh, darn it. I'm like, that just reminded me that this isn't real. You know, yeah. like, it, that takes me out of the moment. So I'm, I'm glad this, you know, I mean, I, why would I expect anything less from Sorkin than to know how to navigate, you know, that sort of water? I guess. Yeah. So, and and also Idris Elba, who's kind of like the second lead in the movie. He's yeah. He's awesome too. So I, that's sort of a given with yeah. Elba. Yeah. I think uh, he's just a phenomenal actor. He, uh, but I I'm curious because we've been going through and there's a film that I know that I have on my top ten that I'm dying to know whether it made yours. Mm-hmm. Dunkirk. No. <laughs> Is Thor that, Ragnarok you're and Last Jedi. Me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, like, here's the thing with Dunkirk, and I know that you're going to talk about how great it is. I don't want to step on you. Do you uh, want me to talk about? Go on and say your thing because there's nothing I can really add to the conversation. And even if I do, all people do is they look at me sideways and they say, Nolan fanboy. And I'm like, you know, I can't come back from that. I well, no, am. I mean, it's going to get nominated for Best Picture and everything. I mean, this is like one of his most critically acclaimed movies. And maybe that was one of the things which, you know, kind of, you know, when, when it first came out, all the critics were like, this is Nolan's best to date and everything. And I don't think that it's bad at all, right? I think the, the way that they structured it is really, really interesting. You know, I love the photography, you know, the whole 70 millimeter and all that good stuff. But to me this is like basically like an experiential thing, right? It's not really about what happened so much as how is it, how it happened. It was, it was, it was about what it was like to be there. You know, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not trying to give you like a history lesson. It's trying to say like, this is what it was like to be at Dunkirk, you know, in a sense. Sure. Right. And that's all well and good, but when I'm watching a Nolan movie, and maybe I've just been trained this way because of all of his other movies, uh-huh. I'm expecting something which is super duper, incredibly dense, which has so many layers to it that every time I go back and watch this movie, I'm going to pull out so many things that it's almost like I'm watching this movie again for the first time. Okay. And, you know, also be an experience, you know, and super exciting and all this stuff. And I came out of the movie thinking like, that was cool, but that's it. Like I, I I was, you know, I'm usually leaving, you know, Nolan movies thinking about them and maybe I don't even like them as much as I do going back. I mean, like Inception is a clear case where I left the theater and I was like, that was really good. And then after thinking about it for days and days and days, I'm like, this is probably the best movie of the year. Whereas with this one, I was like, that was really good. And I've barely thought of it since, you know? Hmm. Okay. But what what made you love it so much? Uh, I just, uh, the fact that I, I went back and I uh, I talked about this, you know, wherever else. But like, the first time I watched it, I had this weird, and there's another film on my list where I had a similar sort of experience where about halfway through, I... I was watching it and I said, and I, this is one where I snuck out late at night by myself, family stayed at home, you know, 
see the 70 millimeter. I was thrilled that a theater near me was actually showing it at 70 millimeter because I was just happy about that. And so I went down and about halfway through the film, I had this weird out of body experience where I said, this is, this is art. I'm, I'm experiencing art. And it was such a weird experience to experience art in a movie theater anymore that I had this whole thing where like there was like five minutes in the center of the film where I was like, do I, I like this as much as I think I do? Because I don't know how to respond to art anymore. You know, like that's not, you know, that's an overstatement for the sake of it. But like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like what I'm watching is so incredible that I can't hardly handle it and process it. So then I did see it a second time. Uh, and the only showing I could get was uh, large format Limax. Um, but I went to it and I took my wife and I loved it even more the second time. And I still and I still marveled at it. And I thought, I, I understand what you're saying about the denseness that he has in his other films, like Interstellar. That's That's a film that I could watch again and again and again and each time have a six-hour conversation after it's over, over coffee, you know, sort of thing. I can't do that same thing with Dunkirk, but what I can do is absolutely revel in what is communicated with minimal dialogue and just an expert, you know, just use of editing and paint. Like, everything about it, I think, is just such a, a beautiful um, sort of... I think on a level, it's sort of the same thing that I've responded to always with Lucas, where it's like the way it's put together, the way that the art comes together just really works and you know I, I you know it's one of those things where I've just been nuts about it since since I saw it and uh I gotta know though okay so Dunkirk's not on there Molly's game what comes after Molly's game we're working our way up the list here after Molly's game is I Tanya oh I um, haven't seen that and I want to so bad yeah. I remember the whole Tanya Harding thing. I remember Me when too. that went down. Come on. Yeah, it's great. Uh, there, there's there's a, a great documentary um, that was part of that ESPN 30 for 30 series. Yeah. I think it's called like Going for the Gold or something like that. It, I, I definitely watch that if you haven't seen it. But, but this is, you know, um, basically sort of the fictionalized version of that in a lot of ways done in sort of a mockumentary style almost. I mean, well, they have like interviews, yeah. quote unquote interviews with, you know, sort of like the the main characters and stuff. And it's it's really great because it's obviously like this very serious subject. I mean, it goes to some very, very dark places. Yeah. And yet at the same time, it sort of is able to maintain this humor throughout. It's like super dark satire in a sense, but yeah, I don't know. That juxtaposition really, really works for me. You're, and, and you're it, you know, it, you, I don't know. It seems like we used to get those all the time, you know, with movies like To Die For and stuff like that, and we don't really get that so much anymore. I don't know what's up with that, but I love it. Uh, you know, you're you're very much selling me on it because I like I can imagine that some of the satire and commentary has. To, I mean, the whole Tanya Harding thing, Nancy Kerrigan thing, is really sort of like the first. I mean, it's not the first of anything, but 
it's almost at the dawn of the idiot age that we live in now. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, like it's yeah. it, it, it's it's like that first little raindrop before the storm comes. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be fascinated to watch this movie just to look at it in the rearview mirror and be like, yeah, we all knew it was coming, didn't we? You know, mm-hmm. like th- that sort of thing. So, okay, yeah. very cool. What's after I Tanya? So number three on my list is a movie which I, I've talked about a lot before, and that's Lucky. Yes, with, with Harry yeah. Dean Stanton. Um, yeah, I, I guess super small, super simple movie, but with just a killer performance by Harry Dean Stanton, and it's just one of those movies which just like hit every every note with me. You know, it's it's very very funny and in, in this sort of like dry humor. And the the character that of, of Lucky that Harry Dean Stanton plays, which is basically himself, is you know hilarious and very you know charming and just you know someone who you just want to hang out with, and you know just sort of this this philosophical outlook on life from the perspective of this guy who's ninety years old and doesn't believe that there's anything coming next is really reassuring you know it's 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 kind of beautiful it's not kind of beautiful it's very beautiful and touching and 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 thought-provoking and funny and everything everything you want in a movie and it's so simple it's you know like under an hour and a half it's just a guy walking around town talking to people but it's so great i highly recommend it Okay. Yeah, I mean you you did talk about it before and I know that uh a guy that we're big we're big fans of Iris Steven Bear uh had a had a hand in it. So yeah, if anybody's a Star Trek fan, um go go support our friend uh, Iris Steven Bear. You there know? you go. So yeah. uh, and David Lynch is in it. He's as crazy <laughs> as he always is. And uh yeah. <laughs> and Lin- and Lynch worked with Stanton uh on Twin Peaks the return or season three or whatever showtime wanted to call it at the time that we were watching it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the third season of twin peaks, he actually plays uh, a part in that. So, you know, that, you know, if, if you want to check out something that's uh really, uh, completely odd and not reassuring or, uh, rather does everything the opposite of what Mike says about, you know, leaving you with any sort of nice feelings inside. Watch Harry Dean Stanton in Twin Peaks because I'm that's about two thirds of the way through season two. Oh boy, this is a rough patch, man. This it is. is a it super is super rough patch. It is. You have to get through it. You know, okay. Listen, I would not fault any. I can't even get through a certain patch of the second <laughs> season of Twin Peaks. No, seriously, I'm a diehard fan. I've been raving about this. It, it was formative and everything like that. But James Hurley with the the husband and wife in the car garage and everything, mm-hmm. like I, the show at that point is like old Yeller. They really should have just taken it out, and they did. They took they they took it out back and they and they canceled it. But trust me, it gets better closer to the end. Okay. It well, does. Heather Graham just showed up, so that's always a plus. That starts to be the upswing. Okay. That that's All like right. the that's that's the first indication of an upswing on the show. So okay. you're at a good point. You're at a good point right now. All right. So we'll see. Okay, so that was Lucky was number three. We know what number one was, so I'm really hoping that number two jives with one on my list, which is Blade Runner twenty forty nine. 
No. I why why did you even put a list together if 2049 <laughs> isn't on it, Mike? I don't understand. Blade Runner 2049 was a really good movie. I, I okay. What on earth could possibly be in that number two slot besides Blade Runner 2049? The only other movie aside from Baby Driver, which is a slam dunk A plus masterpiece this year, and that's Get Out. I haven't seen that yet still. Oh, God, and you're a horror fan, too. Yes, I know. I want to see it, and I keep saying to the missus, I'm like, hey, horror movie lets you and me watch it, and she never, she's too busy watching uh, The Good Wife on Netflix. So I guess I probably need to jump on in and just watch Get Out and get it over with already. Yes. Okay. It's it's so so good. Oh my god. You know, it's 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 really funny and it's really scary and yet, you know, on top of all of that is just this sort of like social commentary which uh I happen to be extremely familiar with and um it's it's uh so so 100% accurate to reality. I love it. I love it so much. I it, well I I very much want to see it. So, uh, okay, Baby Driver, Get Out. I, I haven't seen I, Tanya. I haven't seen Battle of the Sexes, but you're telling me that Thor Ragnarok you enjoyed more and thought it was a better film than Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, for sure. And The Last Jedi was better than 2049. Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. I mean, look, Blade Runner 2049 was great, right? I mean, it was a little too long, no. but had gorgeous photography and, yes. you, know, you know, I mean, some interesting stuff to think about, but at the same time, it kind of felt like maybe a lighter version of the original Blade Runner, right? Oh, that's, it. that's insane. No. Okay. No, that, I cannot agree with that at all. I thought, that, I thought if anything, 2049 is a more robust exploration of everything in the nature of in the nature of reality and what we choose to accept about it in you know up to and including the fact that your main character is a replicant who's found love with a hologram you know and and at one point finds ways finds a way to consummate that relationship like that's that's sort of like just a mind-bending sort of thing if anything 2049 is more in the mold of a Philip K. Dick novel or story or what have you than the original Blade Runner is because questions of identity and loyalty and all of those sorts of things, all of the themes that are at play here in 2049 are in a much more pronounced way uh, like a a Philip K. Dick story. So maybe it boils down to that because the original Blade Runner is basically a straightforward like noir detective sort of thing, whereas this one is much more of a who am I, what's going on, can I trust my own memories, you know, sort of sort of quest uh, through everything. So well, I and, think I think the original does all that stuff, too, just in a much more subtle way. Uh, I, I think that that is unnecessary. To, there, there is more than enough subtlety in 2049 and, and Deckard's not a replicant. So okay. there you go. Do you want to? He is not. I will I will fight tooth and nail. You actually rob the character and themes of a certain intrinsic value by having Deckard be a replicant. It doesn't make any sense for him not to be a replicant. It makes perfect sense because then, spoiler warning for anybody that hasn't seen 2049, but the offspring of, they basically, 
create a new life, a new form of life, an evolution in humanity itself, which is symbolic of the entire thing about the fact that, you know, we're at a stage in our evolution where we have this, you know, evolution of people and machine merging and becoming one, the true cyborg age and everything like that. So that doesn't really spoil any plot points. That's more of a thematic thing, but okay. Yeah, you want to recap your top 10 for everybody before we go? Sure. Okay. Number 10, The Post. Number 9, Thor Ragnarok. Number 8, Logan. Number 7, Star Wars Episode 8, The Last Jedi. Number 6, Battle of the Sexes. Number 5, Molly's Game. Number 4, I, Tanya. Number 3, Lucky. Number 2, Get Out. And number 1, Baby Driver. And uh, just to give my my uh, top... 14? Yeah, 14. I'll, you know what? I'll just give you the 2017 movies that I loved. Greatest Showman, Jim and Andy, Baby Driver, Dunkirk, Logan, Blade Runner 2049, in no particular order. And no, that's not 10, but the other ones are taken up by Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Kingdom of Heaven, Nightcrawler, Hell or High Water, The Wages of Fear, and Hunt for the Wilder People. And straight out of Compton. So... It's a good list. Yeah. It's not yeah. entirely from 2017, as promised. So That's okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Well, if anybody wants to uh, browbeat you more thoroughly about uh, Blade Runner 2049, Mike, where can they find you online? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on Trek.fm doing a show called The Edge and another show on Trek.fm called Stage 9 with you. That's right. I'm over there on stage nine with you uh, where we're going through the works of Quentin Tarantino right now. And you can also find me back here on this network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations with Matthew Rushing. And out there in the ether, I am co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And you can look for me by my online nom de plume, Kessel Junkie. So thank you for joining us on this journey. Uh, you know, go to the nerdparty.com slash contact and look up Great Shot Kid. Look up the network at Join Nerd Party on Twitter. Use the hashtag Great Shot Kid. Let us know what your picks were. We, did we, you know, have ones on our list that matched yours? Were there ones that we overlooked? So uh, we look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the Nerd Party.